Well, once again, good morning from GracePresLive.com. Uh, my name is Pastor Ransom Kent, and I'm so thankful you've joined us. Thankful you've joined us this morning for our streaming service here at Grace Presbyterian Church. I hope that you have enjoyed the music and the liturgy thus far. We're about to venture into God's Word. I pray that you uh, will be blessed by our study this morning as well. So I'm going to be continuing in our three-part series on the Trinity. Today we're discussing God the Son, and uh, we'll be staying in this portion of Scripture referred to as the Farewell Discourse. Uh, this morning I'll be reading uh, our focused passage of Scripture from John 14, verses 1 through 11. Again, that's John 14, verses 1 through 11. I'll give you a moment to turn there. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Please follow along as I read. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, will I come again? I will come again and take you to myself, and that, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can, you, how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me and does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us this morning. God, for sure, there are many distractions around us in this life. Uh, distractions of stress and anxiety, distractions of quarantine and viruses, distractions of children and loneliness and missing our families, all kinds of distractions. I pray that this morning you would cut through those distractions with the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word would be living and active, sharp as a two-edged sword, that it would cut to the quick, as it might be said, that we would be convicted, we would hear your word this morning and recognize that it is the power of God. We love you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, here's something I want to start with uh, on this sermon, theology, the theology of the Trinity, like, like other doctrines in, in systematic theology, is always connected to the practical. It's always practical. Uh, we tend, especially in our Reformed circles, to want to kind of uh, set up our theology like it's in a museum. Put it behind glass, look at it, marvel at it, but do not touch. <laughs> We're kind of like collectors who collect Star Wars toys or something, and we leave them in the package to increase their value. Well, I'm telling you this morning, theology is meant to be brought out of the package. It's meant to get dirty. It's meant to be with us in our day-to-day -day lives. It's meant to be used. It's meant to be played with. 
And so uh, this morning, as we look at this Scripture, Jesus makes that idea very clear. Look how this passage starts. He says, and again, as he's speaking to his disciples in this farewell discourse, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. The theology that Christ is going to explain here in the following verses to the, answer the questions of the disciples, uh, it should have a real everyday effect for his disciples. It should have a real everyday effect for us. What he's going to tell them should lead them to a place where their hearts will not be troubled. If we look at the language, the original language between, uh, behind uh, the, these, word, this, these two words, hearts and troubled, we could read this phrase like this, because of who Jesus is, because of what he's about to lay down theologically, the very seat of our emotions, our knowledge, our personhood, our volition. So that's what our heart is. It's who we are. It's the seat of who we are. Because of who Jesus is, who we are, our personhood, is commanded to be free of this overcoming feeling of distress danger or affliction that's what affliction that's what troubled means and so uh, as an example I was in a conversation with a gentleman I think it was last year sometime I don't really recall exactly when uh, but he was describing um, he was describing to me some situations in his life that were causing him anxiety and stress and at the end of that statement uh, as a justification he said this but I suppose I have good reason to feel stressed about those things. I, have, I suppose I have good reason to feel stressed. Those are big deals. Uh, and in my gentle pastoral way, uh, I responded and I said, yeah, but do you though? <laughs> um, uh, ironically, I have to ask myself that question every day. I, just, I stress over things. I have anxiety over things. I am troubled over things in my life. And I try to justify that. And the question comes back to me, yeah, but but do you have good reason to do that? What's the point of that question? The point of that question uh, is not to be condescending. Uh, it's to say that if Christ is who he says he is, if, if what the scriptures say about Jesus is true, if his promises are good and they are right and they are guaranteed, then there is not a single situation in our life that should cause us to have good reason to be troubled. So, taking that into consideration, the coronavirus lockdown is not reason enough to allow our personhood, to allow our hearts to be troubled, to, be, uh, to, to be, come under submission of, of that fear or that anxiety. Our health, our, the status of our jobs, uh, the sins of our, our, the people we know that we can't control. All of these things, uh, according to what Jesus is about to teach, we should not be troubled by if what he says is true. And so the question then is, well, uh, um, can any circumstance overcome that? I want Jesus to answer that question. That's why we're going to look at this passage. Jesus is going to answer that question for us. This passage, as Jesus is speaking and answering question, Succinctly expresses, succinctly expresses several key truths about himself, God, the Son. And, and first of all, there's this major kind of underpinning claim. And so if, if it's repeated four times in three different ways in this passage. And so if you ima imagine, if you will, 
if this passage had a visual reminder of, of this truth, this passage would be kind of like this giant flashing neon sign that says, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Me, me, just lighting up again and again, reminding us over and over who Jesus is. So that's the first point of this sermon is that Jesus is God. And I'm going to run through this passage and show you where uh, this passage communicates that. Jesus says over and over and over again, I am equal with God the Father, but I am distinct. In fact, the whole New Testament, that is what it teaches about Jesus Christ. He is equal but distinct from God the Father. He is God the Son. I was going to preach today on John 1. I'm going to go there very quickly. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to John 1, I'm going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 and verse 14. This is the introduction to John's Gospel where we are studying today in chapter 14. But he makes a very clear statement. He uses this word, word. It's capitalized there if you can see. This is a Greek kind of philosophical term, logos, that he is, has um, uh, taken and he's redefining it. He's capitalizing it. He is making this concept of truth from Greek philosophy. He is naming Jesus' word. He's naming Jesus' truth. And so look what he says about Jesus in these few verses. He starts by saying, in the beginning was the word. This should bring flashbacks of Genesis 1. What happened in the beginning? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So this is the very beginning, if you think about it, the eternal beginning. So in the beginning was the word. Jesus was there from eternity. What else about the word? And the word was with God. So there's some distinction here, not separation, but distinction. God the Father, God the Son are not exactly the same thing. And yet, what else? The Word was God. And so there's the oneness factor. He was in the beginning, in verse 2, with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him, and without Him not anything was made that was made. And so you see here that you have uh, the identification of Jesus as eternal, co-eternal with God. He was with Him, yet they were the same. And then you see this job description. All things were made through Him. What he's saying is what God decrees, what God plans, what God wills, Jesus is there to carry those things out. We, we go to this passage now and look for those same realities. Look at me at the second part of verse 1. So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. What's the very first thing that ought to bring us untroublesome in our lives? Believe in God, believe also in me. These are imperatives, they're commands. Jesus is saying, do this thing. And what is he saying to do? He's saying in the same way that you put your trust in the eternal one God of Israel, God the Father, you should also put that exact same trust in me. He's, he's drawing a, a, an equivalent to himself and God. They are equal. This, the same way we trust God, we ought to trust Jesus. Jump down with me to verse 7. He says in verse 7, if you had known me, again, answering a question from Thomas, if you had known me, you would have known my father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Here's what he's saying. If, he's saying, listen, if you have observed me, which they had, if you have observed the way I lived, what I taught, who I was, if you had observed me, then you would also have observed the father. Why? Because they are one. They are equal. And then he finishes by saying, and from now on, you do know. He's saying, now you have experienced me, and because you have experienced me, Jesus, God the Son, 
you have also experienced God the Father. What is he saying? He's saying, knowing me, knowing Jesus in the flesh, having a relationship with Jesus is having a relationship with God. They're equal. Jump down again to verse 9, answering Philip's question. He says, have I been with you so long and you still do not know, know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. There's two ways you can read uh, those who have seen me. It's either those who have literally seen Jesus, or it may mean those who have been given the power to perceive who Jesus was. Either way, when you see Jesus, what do you see? You see God in the flesh. God the Father, God the Son, one and the same. Jesus is teaching from a Trinitarian point of view. There is no separation. There is distinction and unity. And then we finish up in verse 11, the the fourth expression of this equality. Again, Jesus is saying this over and over. These are his own words. He says in verse 11, "Believe believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. In is a a preposition of location, and it here is, is communicating oneness, connectedness, sameness. You can't escape the fact that Jesus here is claiming for himself to be God the Son. God the Son. He is unified with God the Father. He is one a piece of the whole Trinity. And he finishes verse 11 by saying, or else believe me on account of the works themselves. He's saying, if, if you want real proof, look at my life. What did Jesus do throughout his ministry? He healed the sick. He brought the dead back to life. He multiplied food to feed the masses. John, John majors on these events through his book. And what is he trying to do? He's making a case. Jesus is God. Me, me. You see what I'm saying? Jesus is God. And so we have this truth. This is the truth that's being presented here, that Jesus is not just a good man, not a great teacher, not someone who was kind of like a Hercules, half God, half man. No, he is fully God, fully man in the flesh. But the reality is that truth, we could certainly have that truth all by itself, and and what could we do? We could put it in that museum, put it behind glass. We could marvel at it. But the information that is given to us through the rest of this passage connects that reality with our lives and it actually brings us comfort. Jesus being God is comforting for sure, but what is more comforting we find in verse 2 through 6. You see, Jesus is God, yes, but we find here and what Jesus talks about is that Jesus is the loving extension of the Godhead to us. Jesus is the loving extension of the Godhead to us. Let's take a look. Here he says in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now here Jesus is obviously, this is about to be a joke, uh, he's obviously quoting from the audio adrenaline song. He misses, of course, the big field where we can play football, but uh, that's beside the point. Um, If you want to know what my joke is about, look up uh, My Father's House by Audio Adrenaline. You'll have a good chuckle. Anyway, Jesus is describing God. He's describing God, and he's saying that this, God has a house. He's using an illustration. God has a house, a dwelling place for his family. 
God has this abode, if you will, this dwelling place. And in this dwelling place is plenty of space for his children. So there's an illustration. Remember last week, uh, this is an expression of what? God's primary identity as Father. It doesn't say here, Jesus does not use uh, the example of uh, a king with a castle for his subjects or as a ruler, a, 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 a man who has a factory or a field and space for his workers. Or even as a creator, he does not have a world for his creatures. No, since God is primarily a father, what does he have? He has a home. And in that home, he has space for what? His children. His children. So here we are seeing Christ use an illustration, a house, a home, in which he will abide with his children forever. And so what is paradise? Imagine, if you will, again, it's kind of like what we've been going through for the last six or seven weeks. It's quarantine. We're with our children all the time, and yet this is one that is not tiresome. <laughs> this is eternity that is not tiresome. We, as God's children, won't misbehave. Okay, And so it's something joyous to look forward to. So Jesus is using this illustration he's saying God is a father he has a home he has space for his children and what is he going to do look at verses 3 and 4 and if I go and prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way to where I am going and so what is he talking about he's going actually this is the emphasis of this phrase that he's using here it's not preparing it's more the going so what is Jesus doing how is he going he is going to face hell he is going to go through pain of the of the crucifixion for our sins he's going to face our punishment and the wrath of God he's going to come back through the resurrection he's going to have victory and then after that as we know from scripture he ascends he in a sense rejoins God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity he's back to where he had been since before creation. And so uh, he uh, is going to do this thing to make a way for us, to, to, to make a, a path for God's children to join God in heaven. And, and he's going to make space, prepare a place. Now, I, I grew up thinking that God was going to build Ransom, a specific mansion that, that met my desires and my likes that is not what's being talked about here. That is, that is missing the point. It's not about the dwelling place. It's not about what that thing looks like or the thing that you're going to get. No, this is talking about an abode where we will be satisfied. It's a place where we will be most fulfilled. Where is that place? That place is at home in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for eternity. And so... The promise of this special prepared place, this thing that Jesus is going to do, is not about what you will get, it's about who you will be with. And so Thomas, as he hears Jesus describing this concept, he is enticed, he loves it, he, he likes this idea, but he is confused. Thomas is confused. Look at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas wants to be there. He, I'm in. I want this. But he does not know how to get there. And so what, what does Jesus say to him in return? Jesus says to him in verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. So he's answering the question, what's the destination? The destination is the Father. The second question is, how do I know the way? What is the way? It's Jesus. How do we get to this place of satisfaction and eternal fellowship and love that has been shared by the Trinity for eternity? How do we get there? Through a relationship with Jesus. So Jesus claims here, I am the only way to God. I am the only truth about God. I am the only way to have true eternal life. The way, these words, way, truth, life, way means a line leading to a point, a single line leading to a single point. Truth, I love this definition, dependable actuality. (laughs) It's a nicer way to say absolute truth, meaning a, a dependable actuality. It's not my personal truth or your personal truth or Jesus' personal truth. No, actuality means Jesus is simply revealing how things really are. And it's dependable. He's not lying. He's not pulling the wool over eyes. In fact, he's just showing us who God is and the way things are. So Jesus is the only truth, the absolute truth. And he's also the life. This is that same word from our sermon last week. It refers to vitality and happiness and healthiness, exuberance. And so what we're learning here is that there is no secret password to get to heaven. There is no particular set of behaviors you have to adhere to. No, uh, there is one way of getting to heaven. There is one truth. There is one way of having life, and it is a relationship with God the Son. Remember, Jesus, as, as one of the three persons in the Godhead, is the loving extension of God to us. And this is that explanation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. A common criticism of this particular truth is this, and I've heard it many times. Um, Well, Jesus is the one way to God. That seems awful exclusive. Uh, God only gives us one way. Uh, Man, that, that seems narrow. And And I will admit, I think from a certain perspective that we as humans are innocent, we are generally good, (laughs) that that we deserve every chance that we can get. From that perspective, I say, sure, that does seem very narrow, very exclusive. But from the perspective of Scripture, from the perspective of Jesus, from the perspective of who God is in this triune reality, this theology of the Trinity, uh, it doesn't get more inclusive than this. Think about it with me. The triune God. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. What happened before creation? They existed in perfect unity, glorifying one another, perfect loving fellowship. What does that mean? What are some of the ramifications of that relationship that they had? They did not need us to be complete. They had completion already. And so God didn't need us to know love. God didn't need us to have a full, satisfactory experience. God didn't need us to have fellowship. And regardless of that, regardless of Him not having those needs, what did He do? He includes us. He includes us. He invites us into that fellowship. And He tells us the clear way of having it. And so yes, Jesus is the only way to God. You, hear it, you heard it here, folks. Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other religion. There is no moral standard. There is no other prophet. Jesus is the only way. 
But what's comforting about that is that it isn't a mystery. God hasn't hidden it. God has revealed it. He has said, what Jesus is saying here to Thomas is actually not anger or frustration. He is comforting Thomas. What he's saying to Thomas is, Thomas, if you know me, you know the way. And what the scriptures are saying to us today is, if you know Jesus, you know the way. You know the truth. And you know life. Now there's one final piece of information from this passage that kind of underpins the point that we just were talking about. Uh, And that is that God the Son and God the Father, they are in eternal agreement with one another. Look with me at verse 10. Verse 10 is going to add another piece of of information to this uh, scenario, and it will provide, I believe, even more comfort for us. Look at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus asks. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So I want to just make a point. Jesus is not less than God the Father. Remember uh, uh, John 1, right? So he was with God. He was God. They were together equal. Okay, They were together in equality and power and substance. But in that relationship... Jesus, God the Son, submits, as it says here, to the authority of God. Think about John 1 again. What happened? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And yet, what happened? God said the words of creation, but who carried out the act? The Word, God the Son, Jesus. Nothing was created without the work of Jesus Christ. So here, what is it saying? What Jesus is saying is, the words that I speak are not my words. One theologian, J.I. Packer, says that the Father and the Son have this eternal agreement to exalt one another. And so because of that truth, because of what Jesus is, is saying here, it may seem subtle, but it is what it is. What he's saying is that God the Son cannot undermine God the Father. He can't undo what God the Father wants Him to do. In the same way, God the Father cannot accomplish His mission through any other avenue than God the Son. And so it's this relationship, again, it underpins this idea that Jesus is the extension of God's love towards us. This relationship of the Trinity is the very foundation of our salvation. The fact that Jesus, God the Son, and God the Father have this relationship where they are committed to exalt one another, one through making the plans, the other through carrying them out. This this is the basis of, for our salvation. And the fact that that relationship exists is why we can be saved. I mentioned a book last week by Michael Reeves, Delighting in the Trinity. This quote I'm about to read is from him. He says, if God was a single person, so instead of one God in one person, God in three persons, he's saying if God was a single person, salvation would look entirely different. If God was not a father, he could never give us the right to become his children. If he did not enjoy eternal fellowship with the Son, one has to wonder if he would have any fellowship to share with us at all, or if he would even know what fellowship looks like. We are saved by a loving Father, and we are invited into this eternal fellowship because God is a Father and He has known fellowship. 
And He has enacted that salvation. How? By sending God the Son to do the work of the Father. Look again at the end of verse 10. But the Father who dwells in Me does His works. And so as we remember the command, let not your hearts be troubled. That command is aimed at the comfort of our souls, the comfort of our personhood. And so if you could remember one thing from this sermon, it would be this. The doctrine of the Trinity is a comforting doctrine. It brings comfort. It's a doctrine we can carry around with us every day. So yes, Jesus is God. That's that's great truth but what is behind that truth they can actually reach us where we're at in our difficulty in our circumstances the very existence of god the son that he is that he is the intentional planned out before time loving extension of god inviting us into that fellowship that has always been there and will always be So what is a good way to summarize this passage? We move to the end of the sermon and we look at application. So what does this mean for me? How can we summarize this passage? I worked really hard on this for a long time, and so I hope you appreciate it. Here's how I would summarize this passage for us, the church. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. As we think about comfort, as we think about how we ought to live our lives and where the doctrine of the Trinity meets us, we have to remember that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. I've been reading, again, Cost of Discipleship, and in the first chapters of that book, Bonhoeffer talks about Matthew 11. In Matthew 11, it says, Come to me, those who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my my yoke, uh, how's it go? My yoke is uh, light, and my, what I wrote it down, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Jesus speaking to sinners. Jesus speaking to us. He's saying, if you you have a weight on you, come to me, I will relieve it. And the difficulty comes when we think about, well, that's not my life experience. Being a Christian is hard. Following Jesus is hard. And his point is this. We actually experience difficulty when we try to to commit to two different ways. We, we find difficulty in our life. We find trouble in our life when we try to commit to two, two different ways. The way of Jesus, like he talks about here in John 14, I am the way, the way that Jesus has called us to go in a relationship with him, and we also simultaneously try to live in the way of the world. We try to do those two things, church. We find trouble. And it brought me to this idea that, listen, Jesus is the way. He is the dependable truth to believe. Our commitment to Him is the only recipe for eternal life. So as I was thinking about this, I realized, listen, my sin, our sin, Ransom Kent's sin, 100% of the time comes from disbelief. Disbelief. So in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. And so what, when I sin, am I actually believing I'm believing, well, there must be another way than Jesus. There must be another way. Another thing that I'm designed for. There must be something about what Jesus says that just isn't true. It's not true what He says. Or, listen, no, I understand Jesus, eternal life's with you, but man, this other thing, this way of the world, it draws me in and I I have to believe that there is life to be found there instead of with you. 
And so as we understand our sin from that perspective, belief in a Trinitarian God, trust in that truth, and, and living as if it is true does what? It brings us comfort. And so what is the command from this passage for someone like me? It is believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ alone. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, there may be some of you listening, and you have not put your trust in God in this way. And and I've got another phrase for you, something that could summarize this passage up. And I worked really hard on it, so I hope you appreciate it. hope you enjoy it. Are you ready for it? To summarize this passage for you, I would say this. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. I know it's the same thing. I was kidding about working hard on it. It's just from the scripture passage. Listen, this is not an exclusive, narrow-minded secret. This is an inclusive, wonderful, beautiful invitation into fellowship and love that has been around for eternity and will last for eternity. The way has been made known. It's Jesus. The truth has been revealed. It's Jesus. Real vitality has been made possible. And what must you do to partake in that? It's as simple as confess and believe. First, you have to do like I have to do every day. Confess, I am a sinner. I cannot do it on my own. I need someone to rescue me. That's the first confession. I need someone to rescue me from this body of death. Second thing is to believe. What should you believe? Believe that Jesus, God the Son, God in the flesh, is that rescuer. He came to this earth to live a perfect life, to do the will of the Father, to reveal who God was, to show the love that He had had with God the Father and God the Spirit from eternity, and then invite people into it. How? By paying for their sins through His death on the cross and then defeating sin, death, and the devil through His resurrection. He has won the day. He is our rescuer. And if you believe in those things, you can uh, victoriously accept the fact that you are invited into that eternal fellowship that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have had from eternity into eternity. There is space for God's children in His house. And to confess and believe reserves your room. Do that and you will be saved. Let me pray for us. God the Father, I pray to you as one who is found in God the Son, Jesus Christ. I pray by the power of the Spirit, I pray that you take my words and interpret them to the request I ought to be making, but I pray two things this morning. I pray for your church, your children, that we would resist sin. We would resist sin unbelief and in so doing we would find our lives less troubled i pray that i pray that we would look at you as the way the truth and the life and we would live as if that is true we pursue you and know you and love you and i also pray for those this morning who might be listening in by chance maybe who just caught the end i pray that you would this morning through the power of your spirit Call your children by name. They would hear your voice and recognize you as their father. 
they would recognize their need for a rescuer. They'd recognize and believe in Jesus as the way, the truth, and the only life they could ever know. That they would accept that. That they would be assured of the space that is made for them in the home of God, in his presence for eternity. I pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.